Welcome to Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight, special quarantine edition. I'm Josh Breslow, and I play Yakopo. Today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 4, Mirabelle, written by Valerie Hill Waller, Leanne H. Adams, and Brian J. Adams, directed by James Larkin, guest starring Tori Kostick and Aiden Alexander. As always, we have a blanket spoiler alert, so if you haven't watched Season 3, Episode 4 yet, stop whatever you're doing. You can quaff your ward's hairdo later and watch Mirabelle either on BYU TV or at BYUtv.com slash Dwight. And a little extra word, we usually record the podcast in the wonderful podcast booth at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood. However, due to the coronavirus quarantine, we are recording this and future episodes from our respective homes via Skype. We very much appreciate your understanding regarding the audio quality, and we'll be back to our usual sound as soon as we're able. Now, a quick recap. Baldrick finds the dress meant for Greta's coming-of-age ball, coming-of-age ball, coming-of-age ball in an old trunk, and Dwight decides to give her the ball she never had by turning the Woodside Sweethearts ball into her coming-of-age ball, coming-of-age ball, coming-of-age ball. But when all the plans are laid and the night is upon them, a ghost named Mirabelle, with a bit of a bone to pick, threatens to ruin the entire evening. It's up to Dwight, Greta, and Baldrick to appease this ghostly gal if they have any hope to throw Greta the coming-of-age ball, coming-of-age ball, coming-of-age ball she's always wanted. And now that everyone's been brought up to date, let's get to our guests. Back with us are the creators and showrunners of Dwight and Shining Armor, Brian J. Adams and Leanne H. Adams. Hello, 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 hello. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. And for the first time this season, you know her as the warrior princess who always gets back up, Greta the Besieged, or IRL, Caitlin Carmichael. Yay, I'm so excited to talk about this episode. You have no idea. I am very excited, too. It's so good to see you. And for the first time on the podcast, we have the ghostess with the mostess, Mirabelle, a.k.a. Tori Caustic. Welcome. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. I'm really happy to be with you guys. This is so exciting. So great to have you. Let's jump in. Uh, first question, uh, Caitlin, I-, I have one for you. Was this entire episode a ploy so you could get dressed up and go to a dance? I had been pitching, I think, Greta having a princess transformation for a long time, but, you know, Brian and Leanne couldn't just go with that. They had to surprise me with this whole whirlwind storyline to get there. Amazing. So this was really just to get you into a princess transformation situation. I definitely took my fair amount of behind-the-scenes photos the entire week. (laughs) We should post that after this. That's great. Okay, so Tori, we'll get to plenty of questions about Mirabelle herself, but for now, I'm curious what the audition process was like for you. Yeah, so there were actually in-person auditions being held, but I was on location filming an indie feature, and so I got the audition one afternoon, and they obviously I couldn't go in because I wasn't in LA, and so I sent in a self-tape, so they needed it, you know, as soon as possible, so one evening after filming for the day, I just, you know, jumped right into the material and put together a self-tape and sent that in, and then the next day I heard that it was moving forward, And then after that, I heard that I booked it and I was really surprised and excited. But yeah, I guess the good thing about the process was I didn't have a lot of prep time. So I really didn't have time to overthink anything. I just kind of had to trust my instincts and go with my gut on it. That's great. I love that it happened so quickly for you. And isn't it the best being able to say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't come in because I'm already on set. It's like by (laughs) far the best situation. Definitely Very cool. the best situation to be in. <laughs> so let's let's talk about, you know, the episode. And I have a couple technical questions before we get into like the utter sweetness of this episode. How did you make the wind blow through that entirely windowless room? <laughs> well, the uh, special effects team 
we had uh, on this episode were really incredible. Uh, this this was an episode, even though it aired in season three, we actually shot this along with seasons one and two when we were still shooting in Utah. And this was with uh, the Roundy special effects team uh, in Salt Lake City. There's sort of legends uh, in their special effects field. Uh, that, that blast uh, was from an, an air cannon that the Roundies uh, made for the movie Backdraft, uh, you know, the Ron Howard movie. Uh, and so in, if you've seen that movie, there's all these you know, moments where they open a door and fire just blasts through it. And so that was one of the cannons. Uh, they, they did the special effects on that movie and they made this uh, cannon for that. So it was huge. Uh, first of all, that it had a massive air tank that I swear it was like the size of a VW. And it would take takes like half an hour to fill it up. And it had this huge funnel sort of like a, an old phonograph record player. Uh, it was also massive. And so when we were ready, the director would get everything set and then they would say, you know, go with the cannon and it would just blast. And it was it, it was no joke. It would, it would move things off of a shelf, you know, 30 yards away. Uh, and it made this horrible noise and, you know, it was... Uh, but as you can see, uh, it's really effective. <laughs> it looks like uh, Mirabelle is a really powerful ghost. So the Roundies did a great job with that air cannon. I will say, when you watch it on the screen, oh, it just looks like a gust of wind. I felt like something was exploding in front of my face when we were filming. And I was having like all the nerves as I knew it was coming up in the scene. I was like, oh my gosh, here comes the air cannon. <laughs> it was a really powerful cannon. So, so Brian, you just mentioned that this episode was filmed uh, when seasons one and two were being filmed, not in three. Yeah. Um, and I seem to remember when we did the podcast recording for All Hail the Woodchuck, you mentioned that the two episodes were being filmed in two gyms next to each other. Is this this other episode that was being filmed somewhat simultaneously? That's right. Good memory. Uh, this there's a whole long story about getting this, uh, getting these two episodes made. First of all, we had two episodes that were entirely set in a high school, but we were shooting them while school was in session. Uh, that was, <laughs> it wasn't the plan, but we got behind schedule and school was in session. And you can't rent a school, it turns out, uh, for an entire you know week or I think it was actually more like two weeks while there were a bunch of students there. So we got super lucky. Uh, we found Provo High School in, in Provo, Utah that was actually shut down uh, for renovation or whatever. So uh, we were able to use that. And it has two gyms. So the first gym that you see when they're in the planning committee is the larger of the two. And they start decorating that one. But then when we go to the decorated gym, it's actually an older and much smaller gym. You can't really tell on screen. But uh, but we were using two. And yes, that's also uh, the larger one is the one we were using for All Hail the Woodchuck. And we were sort of, you know, swapping things to make that all work. It was it was a little bit of a calendaring nightmare, but we made it all work. That's so cool. And, and last question about this and All Hail the Woodchuck. Am I right that Aiden was the hype man for the basketball team in All Hail the Woodchuck as well? Yes, that was Aiden. And he he plays Chad in both episodes. So Chad is into party planning and he's also the captain of the basketball team. I thought Chad was great in this episode. He cracked me up the whole way through and his scream when he walks in and sees the gym destroyed is just priceless. Brian and Leanne, not only do you have to create a slow burn for the romance of Dwight and Greta so that it lasts over the entirety of the show, 
but you also have to create a slow burn within the individual romantic episodes, such as this and Queen Tree. What strategies or techniques do you employ to do this? What we wanted to do on this episode is heat up the romance and then cool it off. Um, we we uh, And that's been our approach from the very beginning. I mean, we, we've really wanted the uh, the relationship with Dwight and Greta to have a progression where they start um, very unsure about one another, um, then they get to know each other and understand each other, then they become best friends. <laughs> and by season three, that's really where they are. They are best friends. They're the most important person in the other one's life, but neither of them are really ready to think consciously about whether their feelings run deeper until about now, <laughs> in the middle of season three, they're starting to wonder if they if if their feelings could be deeper than this best friendship. Uh, and this in this episode, we really uh, see that, especially we see it in Dwight. We see that he's it, it hits him that maybe I have stronger feelings than just friendship for Greta. Um, so we create that moment. It looks like we're going to have this this wonderful school dance episode uh, between Dwight and Greta that finally they're going to have this moment of romantic connection. And then at that moment, we immediately have to tear all that down just as it's heating up, pour a bucket of cold water on it. The dance is ruined. And then before you know it, this what should have been the date between Greta and Dwight becomes the date between Dwight and Mirabelle. Um, and so that helped us to, to cool things off before they escalated quicker than our storytelling could keep up with. Um, and before we could had to write ourselves into now a romantic relationship, just as they approach the, the edge of it, nope, this is gonna turn into something totally different. And then even with the, the, the dance that we built up, they were gonna have this romantic first dance together. Even that ends up turning another way. And she realizes that Baldrick is her most loyal knight and he's the one that she's going to have this first dance with in this really sweet way. So yeah, we basically are just going to tease this romance and this relationship as long as we can and then probably a little longer than we really should uh, just to keep that tension there. Um, but it, it, it is heading somewhere, I'll tell you that. Oh, I know Brian and Leanne know that Sloan and I both are like, we live for the drama of the show. Biggest hopeless romantics when watching TV shows and movies. So it can't just be like, oh, Dwight gives Greta a look. I'm like, well, if, if you're going to do that, then, I, then I'm going to give you a look while you're dancing with Mirabelle. And he's like, well, if you're going to give me that look, then you're going to see me in the background of the scene all blurred out, but I'm going to be looking at you and we'll know that. So <laughs> there's a lot more <laughs> moments in there that have been cut in the editing room. <laughs> of us being dramatic and living through these characters. That's funny. We should find that lost footage and cut it all together. See the rapid romance. Caitlin, there's this combo about Baldrick doing Greta's hair, which is really sweet and funny and odd. But it made me think, Caitlin, you actually had to get ready for this scene. What was it like going through hair and makeup for this episode? Well, I know this sounds crazy, but it was actually a quick process because we were filming the All Hail the Woodchuck episode on the same day. And we had to do a transition in the middle of the day from Greta in mascot suit, sweaty on the basketball field, to Greta in full princess wardrobe. But Leanne had told me, maybe few weeks prior, didn't know anything about it, but she said, we're going to have a school dance episode. So of course, word got to the makeup trailer and everyone started planning out the look from that moment. So we were all very prepared when the day actually came to become a girly princess for a change. I'm picturing you on like a, a futuristic conveyor belt where you just got like sprayed and touched up by each thing. And by the time you got to the end of the trailer, it was just done. Like you the know, Wizard I, of Oz scene. 
I have no proof to convince that didn't happen. <laughs> all right. So a little bit of a follow-up. The the big moment that that all this hair and makeup leads to and the dress is this really sweet reveal that James Larkin shot so well shooting Baldrick and having you peek out from behind him. What was that moment like for you? That was probably one of my favorite moments that we had ever filmed. And there was something so sweet about it. And they yelled cut and everyone just kind of stood there and all of the crew was going, oh, and I don't even think that we realized how sweet of a moment it was until we all went up to the monitor to watch the playback of the scene. And we all knew we have something really special here. And I think it's going to touch the hearts of a lot of people. I think so, too. I think it's one of those things you mentioned fish out of water. It's maybe the most fish out of water moment we've seen for Greta. She's never done this before. This is new for her. And I think that adds to the awe factor because it is so innocent. So this beautiful reveal happens. And I believe there's a very rare needle drop in this scene. So what brought that about? And what hoops do you have to jump through to get licensed tracks on this show? You're right. This is a rare needle drop uh, for this show. And, and this has a little bit of a story behind it. Our composer, Christian Davis, put a song in the rough cut uh, for that moment by an artist uh, from Nashville, I believe, named Perrin Lamb. Uh, the song is called Everyone's Got Something. And we uh, that moment is so incredibly impactful on, on many levels. And that song so perfectly captured it. And it's not unusual for, for the composer to put you know, temp music in, in a cut. And we all know we're not going to get this. I mean, maybe he puts a Rolling Stones song in. We're not, you know, the budget does not allow us to get a Rolling Stones song. But this one, we all fell in love with so deeply that we explored reaching out to uh, the artist who explained the situation. And uh, Christian was able to work something out with him after he showed him the scene that uh, that Perrin Lamb made a, a great deal with us and allowed us to uh, license a song for that moment. And I'm forever grateful that he did because before we had the official license to that song, we tried some other music, but it just wasn't the same impact emotionally. And, and this scene, as much as it's impactful in the, the story, for me personally, this has another level of impact. Uh, we were, at, Leanne and I were actually at, Leanne's mother's funeral when we filmed this scene. Uh, unfortunately, Leanne's mom passed away, and it was you know, the funeral was there, and and um, it, it, so it always brings back all of those uh, emotions as well. It's one of the rare days that we weren't on set, uh, but I remember all the stuff we were going through uh, that day. So um, it, it's probably my favorite scene that we've ever shot, and that that song, that beautiful song, just is the is the perfect uh, you know cherry on top. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, and it it really does that that music. We were talking about this scene feeling different, fish out of water, very different from anything we've ever seen on the show. Putting a music track in draws it into even greater relief, and I think it's incredibly effective. Everything will be perfect this time. Perfect, perfect, perfect! There must be venison, and fire breathers, and dwarves, and barrels of meat. Sounds like a proper ball. 
Guys, the ghost can touch things. If a ghost is intent enough, they can indeed take tangible form. What's she so intent about? Um. What do you think, Greta? night is mine. You okay, Greta? No, Greta. Not tonight. I must practice my dance. Sir Isambert. Let's talk about Mirabelle. She reveals her name, and once it's spoken, she appears. So, Tori, you're in. With Mirabelle, we get this great foil to Greta right off the bat. While Greta is unsure and eventually cautiously optimistic about the ball, Mirabelle shows up proclaiming that everything is going to be perfect this time. Perfect, perfect, perfect. She wants the same things Baldrick and Greta wanted for the ball, fire, acrobats, mead, but she's going at it with a very insistent attitude. So, Tori, what's it like playing a character who has such tunnel vision, you know, who's so blind to everything around herself except for what she wants? Yeah, I think that's definitely a good way of putting it. (laughs) That perfect, perfect, perfect line just sums her up so well such a perfectionist, very insistent on what she wants to happen exactly the way she wants it to happen. Uh, But yeah, Mirabelle was, you know, definitely focused on what she wanted and she's in her own little world. And James and I were kind of looking at it from the perspective of her being, you know, disoriented after appearing in the physical space. And it's almost like she's hearing voices and she's just her perception of reality isn't really all quite there. And so that was super fun to play with for sure. There, uh, there was a lot of time that I was spending by the lemonade stand where you don't see me in the shots, but it's when Greta and Baldrick and um, Dwight are talking. and I'm just over there practicing my dance, fretting over everything, you know, just being crazy in my own little world. So that was really fun to do. Well, it's great. And, you know, you're not just playing a character who is A, disoriented, B, not really acknowledging the other actors, which is a tough acting job since most of what we do has to do with connecting to the other people we're on screen with. So you were really on your own for that. But you're also doing all these special effects. So what was it like shooting the ghost effects, you know, appearing, disappearing, running through Dwight? What was that process like for you? It was interesting for sure, because I didn't really know what it was going to look like. So I just kind of had to trust what I was being told and kind of go for it. But I remember... The one where I run through Dwight, we had a green screen and then we each went separately. So like I did my lines and ran through in one take and then Sloan went in and did his in the next. And so that's how that got put together. That's really interesting. So you had to act in isolation again. So Brian and Leanne, on the production side, what was it like shooting all these various ghost effects? So those are pretty fun to do, a little tricky. So for these shots, we have to lock off the camera. So if it's on a a crane or a slider or a tripod, we lock off the camera so that it can't move. And so we first get a plate shot of just the background. Uh, Then we put the green screen in the back and we'll have one actor run this way. And then we take that actor out and have the other actor run this way. And then in visual effects, they're able to marry those three images. And it's, it's almost like faders on a sound console you can like mix in the different images so as Mirabelle is running towards Dwight you sort of fade her out and uh, add they also add little like little smoke effects or little sparkle or whatever uh, to make it look like uh, she's run through them but then also the actor uh, reacts and this is the real tricky part uh, for the actor has to react even though there's nothing there so Dwight acts like Ugh! 
he got hit in the stomach and we had, if memory serves, we had an, an e-fan or something like that, that we blew uh, some wind on Dwight's hair. So it, it went back. And also later when Mirabelle walks through the other, uh, other student as she's leaving, same, same effect there. So it's a visual effects magic that makes that all happen. So we move along and Dwight realizes that we need to give Mirabelle the ball that she never had. And so Greta has to watch as Dwight does the dance she taught him with Mirabelle. What was that moment like for you, Kaylin? Well, this is going back to me thinking, ooh, this is a major spice moment in the episode. I can serve the drama here. Sloane just got to give that look after I did the reveal behind Baldrick, so now it's my turn. And James Larkin, our director, was like, okay, I think you need to tone it down. Don't give us so much attitude from the lemonade stand. You know, you should be happy for her. And then I realized I was being a little too much like Greta and had the same kind of turning point as she does. And I was like, well... Maybe I should see this as a good thing. And then it kind of helped the rest of the scene progress from there when I had that own little realization in my head. That's so interesting. So as an actress, when you go out a scene thinking you're going to have a specific perspective and then you're given another direction and you're able to merge the two in the moment, what does that really feel like? I think that when having really good direction and we've had fantastic directors on our show, it kind of feels like putting the missing puzzle piece in something. So for instance, it's like I've had these ideas, but sometimes when you take a step back and have someone else's perspective come in, because I never know how things look. I know how it sounds in my own head and how I sound. But when I'm getting that perspective from our director who's seeing the entire scene and its dynamics as a whole, it really makes um, performances feel a lot more well-rounded, which is really satisfying to know that that's clicked. That's a great answer. Okay, Baldrick realizes that Mirabelle is Alderic's daughter whose ball was interrupted by Greta's birth and Mirabelle was killed in an accident on the way to the castle. And this is a pretty grim fate for Mirabelle. So Tori, we talked about your self-tape a little bit. When you did the self-tape, did you have this background information on your character? Yes, luckily I did. They left it in the sides, a little FYI snippet about this information. So that was definitely helpful. Otherwise, I probably would have been like, what is going on with this girl? I don't know. So yeah, it was definitely vital that I had that information. That's great. You mentioned the FYI snippet for people listening at home that maybe don't really know how sides and auditions work. Do you want to explain a little bit what those FYI things are like when we get our sides for auditions? Sure. So in the sides, you know, there's the scene and there's the part that you're actually going to be reading and like filming to send in. And then also they'll include information that's important to you, FYI. So they left in the dialogue between Greta and Baldrick um, about what had happened to Mirabelle so that I could just read it, even though Mirabelle doesn't say anything in that section. Yeah, those are invaluable pieces of information for auditions. One of the things that we were looking for in the character and really hoped that we could find, she needed to be scary and intent uh, but then ultimately so vulnerable and she had to have this turn where there came a moment where you just felt so, so sad for what had happened to her and where you really were on her side. And, and we had to do it fast. Really, she only, her storyline only takes about 12 minutes or so of the episode. And so that's quite a, a turn for a performer to for a character, I should say, to 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 um to take. And so as we're watching the audition and we're just chewing down our fingernails thinking like, are we gonna be able to get that kind of range, especially to be able to see it in an audition? She's gotta be scary, she's gotta be intense, and then you have to just wanna cry for this girl and love her so much. And so honestly, 
when we saw Tori's audition, we were like, oh, yes, <laughs> because it was all there. All the pieces were there, and we felt like we were saved. Like, she, she was really, really freaky when you first meet her with the perfect, perfect, perfect. And then she also had to be funny. On top of that, she had to be funny. I mean, this is impossible, what we were asking. We're crazy people for asking this. And then this audition comes through, and there she is. She's hilarious. She's intense. She's terrifying. And then there's that turn of sweetness in it where she, she just broke our hearts. And honestly, it, it, you were a gift from heaven. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's so sweet to hear all that and your thought process on everything. You know, that also makes me realize you as a writer, uh, and Valerie was also a writer on this, uh, really painted yourselves into a bit of a corner creating this entire arc in, like you said, 12 minutes. Because a lot of the other episodes, Flip is a good example when Yokopo is introduced, Lotions and Potions is a good example when Hexel is introduced. You start with these characters and you give them the full episode to get their background, to have a full arc, to have that turn at the end. Why uh, did you do this to yourself? Why did you only <laughs> give yourself those 12 pages or you know 12 minutes uh, to create a full three-dimensional character? So it was partly intentional and partly not. Um, on the one hand, we felt like we still were building her character just by creating an ominous threat of her. So we wanted to have, uh, from the very beginning, we're creating this scary presence of her that we know there's something out there. And, and we really wanted her initial impression to be scary. So, um, so she's a, a presence in the story, even from the very beginning, but a very mysterious one. So also, the, uh, the other part of that question, uh, we, there was a lot more of her storyline in the script that didn't make it into the episode only because this episode was a strange, strange anomaly. Most of our scripts are about 27 or 28 pages, and they come in on their rough cut at about 25 or 26 minutes, and then we have to trim them down to roughly 24 minutes. That's been very standard with our scripts. This script was 28 pages. It came in at 35 minutes. It was the most heartbreaking thing that had ever happened to that point because we loved every moment of that director's cut. And there were there were whole scenes uh, between Dwight and uh, and Mirabelle where Dwight was able to understand the pain she was in in a way that nobody else could, and they talked about it. That all had to go. It was awful. In fact, when we first saw the director's cut, we thought. This is so good. Should we honestly make it a part one and part two and just shoot more? And and so we so we don't have to lose any of this. But it was not feasible to do that. And so we we had to go through and really pare back Mirabelle's storytelling in a way that honestly broke our hearts. And we had some anxiety, wondering like, is the story still going to work? Is it still going to gel? Very thankfully, that their characters were so clear that we were able to hinge the story on a few key pieces of dialogue, a few key moments between the actors, so that even, even pairing away some of those scenes, we still understood what they'd done. And I give all of the credit there to our actors and the way that they, they presented the characters to us to enable us to tell the story, even though we were really, um, really in a bind uh, with having to, to trim so much from it. So yeah, she wasn't intended to be as, um, as scaled back as she ended up being. That's incredible. I do hope that one day we get to see a director's cut of this. Okay, okay, so back to the story. 
Greta decides to sacrifice her ball for the sake of her ghostly subject. Caitlin, what does it feel like for you every time Greta makes yet another sacrifice of her youth and youthful experiences for the sake of running a kingdom? I got the script of just Leanne saying, oh, we're having a school dance episode. And so here I am thinking Greta's getting her ball. We're going to have a school dance. Greta's going to have her dance with Dwight. Not really knowing, I was like, the word keeps echoing, but I'm sure it's going to be fine, you know, just like Greta, very cautiously optimistic. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Greta's giving up her ball. Um, I've kind of learned to expect it because it's a little bit of a trend in the show, just as Greta kind of expects having to make those sacrifices. But I think that it's the first time that she's ever, that I can think of, it's the first time she's ever willingly giving up Dwight to something or someone else. And Dwight's always been by her side and kind of attending to her problems and struggles and helping her save the day. But this is the first time that she's giving him up to go be with someone else and do something else. So that was a a bit of a change in this situation. That's a really interesting way to describe it. And it plays and it reads and it's very moving, I thought. Quick side question. Does Dwight eat meat in this episode? Dwight does eat meat in this episode. And venison, of all meats, it's a little gamey. But he, <laughs> the, the thing about Dwight, he seems like he would be a vegetarian. He's actually not officially a vegetarian. He may he he may be a vegetarian at some point later, you know, in his life, uh, or maybe even later in the series. But at this point, you know, Dwight, one of his core characteristics is that he's open-minded, and he's open-minded still uh, with his approach. Approach, you know, to meat and even towards gamey meats like like venison. He's sort of like, all right, let's let's try this out. As you know, he didn't love it, and we have had several pitches, including from Dwight uh, Sloan himself, saying, you know, Dwight's got to be a vegetarian. He's not officially yet, but he's sort of uh, vegetarian adjacent, if we can say it like that. Yes, absolutely. That's that's very interesting because my mind goes back to the Prinduckin at the end of season one. And how he was keeping the the duck and the chicken and the princess alive and not eating any of them. So, Tori, we get this great montage at the dance. The dance, you're eating food, you're playing around, you have props, you're taking photos. How much of all this was planned? How much was improvised with you and Sloan? Yeah, so we definitely, you know, took what was on the page and just kind of explored it. Um, In terms of the dancing, we were talking with our director, James, and we were like, so how would they be dancing right now? And we kind of came up with this idea that Dwight would be teaching Mirabelle some like cliche dances that we would all recognize now. And Mirabelle would be teaching Dwight some like medieval <laughs> type rondelette style of dances. So we were kind of going back and forth teaching each other the different styles. So that was part of it. And then, you know, just kind of dancing around and improvising too. But yeah, shooting that dance montage was possibly you know my favorite thing from the experience because the energy was just so great and it was so much fun and I had you know my costume I had this big long train and at one point I just completely tripped and Sloan helped me up and we were just <laughs> laughing really hard because I just like ate it so bad but yeah that was a really fun moment for sure that's so great you guys had like a cross millennia choreo cultural exchange going on that's so fun definitely yeah that's <laughs> <Sure. laughs> great mirabelle gets what she always wanted her coming of age ball i'll stop there and she moves on greta and dwight have a wonderful conversation and it's the heart of the episode which is always my favorite part where dwight acknowledges the sacrifice greta made tonight what surprised me about this moment is that greta is actually doing the comforting here caitlin did you expect 
to be comforting Dwight slash Sloan in that moment of Mirabelle disappearing? I really didn't. And there's there's two really interesting parts of this moment, to me at least. Um, first is that I think Greta's realizing that he wasn't necessarily just um, showing kindness to Mirabelle, but he actually really did have a connection with her. And that's something that she picks up on a little bit. It's not necessarily um, any sense of jealousy, but just realizing that connection to her and that really opens her heart to Dwight and wanting to comfort him, even though he's only known Mirabelle for a few minutes or hours, however long this span of our narrative time is, he's still recognizing that sense of loss when she decides to pass on. And even though we filmed this as part of uh, like late season one or season two, it actually plays out really perfectly at this point in season three, I think, to set up a little bit of what's to come. There's I know I can't spoil anything, but there's obviously a sense of danger that comes with all of our episodes, and that really picks up in season three, and I think establishing uh, how much Greta and Dwight care about each other in this episode is really useful and valuable going towards these next episodes. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Okay, so Mirabelle leaves one last gift, giving Greta her first dance by possessing those turntables. The DJ looks utterly confused. Greta looks for Dwight, but he's gone to take care of the twinkle lights. He's back to his fix-it mode. Um, What was this moment like for you, Caitlin? I think, even as Caitlin, I'm reading the script and I'm still kind of expecting the typical ending of Greta and Dwight having their dance together. And then when Greta asks Baldrick to have the dance, it was like my heart like shattered into a bunch of little like butterflies that like flew into the sunset. That's how I would describe it. It was one of the sweetest moments and just the way it was written was so beautiful. I think I cried while reading the script. Joel and I were crying while we were filming it. We cried when we watched the episode. Brian's giving me Skype heart emojis. I love it. Um, It's really, really sweet. And I think Greta and Baldrick moments are some of my favorites in the entire show. And I think you can really uh, pick up on that sense of heart on screen for sure. This episode did make me cry a couple times. And that was one of them. The other was when Greta decides to make the sacrifice for Mirabelle. That got me. I also think that while we're all in this like quarantine self-isolation, when Greta's realizing that it's not necessarily the materialistic parts of her ball that matter to her, but having those moments with Baldrick and Dwight, it's very timely for the world right now. I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. So this episode wraps with Greta being very humbled. She had to give away her ball. She had to give away her champion for the evening. And now instead of having this coming-of-age ceremony... She ends with a very sweet childlike moment, like you just mentioned, Caitlin, a father figure daughter dance. Uh, what inspired this type of arc for this episode? So that's a, that's a great question. Um, so if you look at how the episode is structured, it does have an A story and a B story. And you can argue which is the A and which is the B. It probably doesn't really matter. <laughs> but let's at the moment say that um, that the A story belongs to our normal heroes. Let's say that. In that case, um, the protagonist of that A story is Baldrick. He's the one that really wants this ball for Greta. He's pushing it from the very beginning, coming out with the dress. And like, should we do it? Should we do it? And you see it all over his face. He's been planning this for years. He's got the map of how it's all going to work. He wants this so bad for her. And I think as a parent, we can all relate to like this thing you want to give your child to make their childhood perfect and to, to do it right, to be a good parent 
parent. So he he's really pushing. And through that whole sort of silly first half of the episode where he's trying so hard to make this perfect for her, it's really his his gift and his offering for her. Uh, and every time something goes wrong for him and he there's no dwarves and there's no fire breather and there's that freaking fire marshal is shut down the candlestick jumping and like and you just see it like taking its toll on him because this isn't turning out to be the gift he wanted it to be and he's doing her hair and you really you really sense that this means way more to Baldrick than it does to anybody else with the exception of Mirabelle <laughs> she might be the only other person as obsessed with the coming of age ball. So for that story to feel like it has had an ending, and it really has been all about a parent trying to give something to their child, that moment at the end where where Greta, in her way, acknowledges, you're my most loyal knight. <laughs> you're the person, you're the most important person in my life. You're my dad. Thank you for everything you're doing. Like that's everything that she communicates by turning to Baldrick and saying, would you care to dance, Baldrick? It's all there. And that's all he was doing it for. <laughs> so it, it it really felt like the nice a nice conclusion to his story of what he's trying to give his child. And they have this father-daughter dance. And it that felt like the conclusion that we needed. You know, Mirabelle got her dance. She got her closure. And she gets to move on. We, we feel confident she's moving on to a happy place. So we feel resolved there. But we left Baldrick quite unresolved to resolve it with what he really wanted to have this this kind of a perfect parent moment with his his kid. That's the moment that we give it to him. It's a great answer, and it's a really beautiful moment. Also, my takeaway is that the Marshal of Fire is truly the <laughs> villain of the episode. <laughs> Um, so Caitlin and Tori, we've been doing something a bit different to wrap up in this time of isolation and quarantine. And I'd love to ask, is there something new you've tried or discovered during your time at home? One thing I've been doing is watching movies and baking, baking all the time. And I'm going to have to steal some recipes from Leanne at some point, but banana bread, zucchini bread, homemade pound cake, grandma's recipe. That's where it's been at for me. Oh, that sounds delicious. Tori, what about you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been keeping pretty busy with online school and whatnot, but I've also been doing yoga a couple times a week now, which I did yoga before, so it's not technically new, but I've been doing it more often, so that's been helpful for me. I'm trying to think what else. Spending time with family, playing a lot of card games. I've learned some new card games, I guess, but, you know, we tend to stick to Uno, the classic. It's very competitive. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. Uh, that all sounds great. Okay, well that wraps it up for season three, episode four of Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind the scenes podcast about everything Dwight. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, Tori. And thank you, Caitlin. You can follow Brian on Instagram at Brian underscore J underscore Adams. You can follow Leanne at Leanne H. Adams. You can follow Tori at Tori Caustic. And you can follow Caitlin at ReallyCaitlinXOX. You can follow me at the Josh Breslow, and you can follow the show at Dwight and Shining Armor. Tune in again next week for season three, episode five, Just Desserts. Till then, I'm Josh Breslow. Thanks for listening. If you're quarantined on your own, reach out to some friends and discover something new about them. If you're lucky enough to be with loved ones, try something new together. An adventure at home. It might change your life. Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom is written, edited, and hosted by Josh Breslow. The theme song is composed by Christian Davis, executive producers Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams.